0: This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German, and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, Studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk.
1: How can we unpack the history of schooling in colonial India by looking beyond official records of success and failure? How did the classroom in the princely state of Mysore become a place where children and young adults unlearned traditional prejudices and picked up new sensory skills which in turn shaped their understanding of their own selves in a modern world? In this GHIL podcast interview, I am joined by GHIL's Senior Research Fellow and Head of the India Research Program, Indrashan Gupta, to talk to Janaki Nair about the ideas behind her lecture on the Classroom as Sensorium, Tactility, Attention and Perception in the Mysore School, 1860-1930. Janaki Nair has taught modern history at the Center for Historical Studies at JNU New Delhi and at Azim Premji University, Bengaluru.
0: Hello and welcome, Janaki Nair, to this podcast of the German Historical Institute. We're very happy that you could join us this morning, our time and afternoon in India. You are a historian of many things. Your areas of work include urban history, which I think you are best known for. Your work on labour history, the interrelation between labour and urban history. You have worked on women and law. And you have worked on the state of Mysore and you you have encapsulated in your work some of the big arguments about India's modernity in the colonial period. So my first question to you is that in your relationship with us and we've been working together, you have been working together with this institute since 2012, if I'm not mistaken. So that's 11 years of working with the GHI in its many forms. You worked with us on something rather different. You worked with us on the history of education, but in a way on the history of mass education in India. Can you tell us a little bit about where your interest in the history of education comes from? Because you've done a lot of work, but it hasn't been as widely published, as widely known as your other work. So can you tell us a little bit about this and about the context and why you are coming into the history of education so late?
2: Thank you for those very uh, interesting questions, which allow me to reflect on my own uh, trajectory. I may not have a satisfactory answer in terms of explaining the kinds of decisions I've made in the kinds of research work that I have done. And that actually leads me to this question of what, actually unifies my work. And this is something I've spent some time thinking about in the recent couple of months, actually, that I have sort of taken it for granted that I work on this region, which predominantly consisted of the princely state of Mysore before independence and uh, the state of Karnataka after the unified state of Karnataka after uh, independence, of which Mysore formed a part. So my work has in some ways been, I suppose, regionally rooted. It is the region I know best. It's the language I know best in terms of being able to examine sources in this language. And so most of my writing and research has been on this region. Yes, you are right. I came to the history of education perhaps more recently, and uh, certainly the invitation to be part of the transnational research group in 2012 was an impetus to actually investigate some questions related to a more contemporary history of education. And that has actually a personal element to it, which is that When I finished my college, I worked briefly in an alternative school and continued to work in alternative school networks for a period of four or five years before I actually went on to complete higher education. So I did have a link with actual teaching, which provided me the kind of uh, interest and impetus to investigate what might be The experience of alternative schools, schools which were actually attempting to provide an education that was a little different, particularly to those who had no school options. And so we're talking about the 1970s in India, a time when many children did not go to school. The right to education itself became a right only in 2009. So we're talking about a very long period when education was simply not on the horizon for many of India's poor And I was looking in particular at a set of schools, Uh, there was a big network of schools, actually, the book which is finally based on this work, and has come out last year called Uncommon Schooling, reflects only a very small proportion of the large network of alternative schools that existed, particularly in southern India. So that was one interest. That was a more, I would say, a more contemporary interest, an interest in a more contemporary historical moment. But the association with GHIL also gave me a chance to visit archives in London. And one of the most enjoyable, I should say, and also most interesting archives was, of course, the Missionary Archive that is housed currently in SOAS. That had not only the mention and a very detailed mention of what the missionaries did in the field of education, because they were the first. In fact, they even preceded the state in setting up schools in the state of Mysore. And this is true for many parts of India as well. Not only did they have detailed notes about that effort, which was tied, no doubt, to an effort to actually convert people to Christianity. At least in the early stages, the education impetus was tied to conversion. But they also generated a fairly interesting though small body of photographs that provoked me to think about what the visual is doing in this kind of effort of recording what they had actually attempted to set up in the educational sector. The set of photographs led me to ask a completely different set of questions. So in some ways, it's, I suppose, an example of how an archive can spark off uh, sets of questions which may not have been there at the outset of the research that one begins. In fact, I was looking for some very specific kinds of material, written material, related in particular to the development of geography as a discipline, I was disappointed that I did not find the kind of material that I was looking for. It did not exist, at least in uh, written sources that I looked at. Uh, I'm still hopeful of finding ways of addressing that question. Uh, But I did find this very wonderful archive, on the basis of which I've actually now written two articles. One is called Seeing Like a Missionary, which has, of course, talked about the photographic archive of the missionaries particularly in the late 19th and the early 20th century, as a record in particular of their educational achievements. And the second article led me to think differently about the classroom as a space that was actually something quite new because learning to the extent that it happened amongst uh, poorer classes of people was largely informal, I would say, and also in very informal spaces. So sometimes it was held in the of a temple or on a veranda of a a rich person's house or sometimes simply under a tree. Whereas the colonial educational system, especially that which was propagated by the missionaries, actually insisted on the building of schoolhouses and the schoolhouse itself became a symbol of this new educational order because there was actually, uh, this is something I have not discussed, but it is something worth thinking about, but there was an architectural plan of schoolhouse building which was very carefully followed and imitated by the state when it decided to take up the question of mass education following the initiatives of the missionaries. So my questions in looking at the photographic evidence led me to think about the schoolroom as a completely new kind of space and as one which engendered a certain kind of sensory experience that might have been quite new and unusual. I'd
0: like to follow up, you know, the sensory element of your talk in, in a little bit. But I think before that, if you don't mind, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think Kim wanted to ask you something about your work. And then I'll, I think we can take up this after her. That's all right. with you.
1: Thank you. I think you've already hinted at it a little bit. I was going to ask you, for those of us who don't know a lot about Indian history and the different regions of India, if you could tell us a bit more about the region of former princely Mysore, what's special about it, and maybe also different to other regions at the time. So the period of British rule was not entirely rule
2: that was direct by the Mm -hmm. British Close to one-third of India was under its former princes. Arrangements were made to allow the princes to continue in newly defined territories, of course, with very, very curtailed powers. So they did not have the power to maintain an army. They did not have the power naturally to wage war, and they had no power to engage in international kinds of interactions. In return for the protection that they received from the government of India, they paid a large subsidy, a subsidy which Mysore, for instance, was the second largest uh, uh, princely state in India. And uh, its subsidy accounted for something like 40% of what the princely states contributed to the British Exchequer. Just to give you a an idea of how many princely states there were there were about 562 princely states but many of them were simply tiny little uh, jagirs consisting of a few villages so the principally large princely states were uh, mysore hyderabad kashmir cochin and travancore and uh, of course baroda so the others were very tiny principalities which were you know also called princely states and the british had engaged uh, treaties with each of these So these were formally recognized entities which functioned under the paramount power of the British. At the time of independence, all the princely states were invited to be part of the Indian Union. It was not an easy job because many of them did not want to be part of the Indian Union. And this was finally achieved through a process of uh, uh, persuasion, coercion and outright military intervention as well. So that's the story of the princely states. They really are a very large part of British India, indirectly ruled by the British and directly ruled by the princes. Um, In the case of Mysore, which is the state with which I'm most familiar and which I worked on most, the British actually restored a power, a Hindu power, the Wadayars, after their power had been actually interrupted for close to 40 years by some of the most uh, implacable of the British foes in India, Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan. This return to a dynasty, which in some ways had more or less been forgotten by this time, was a deliberate tactic, of course, of the British to try and establish a new kind of control over a region that had long held out against their military invasion. I won't go into the history that I've written many things about this, uh, but that's the brief history of Mysore. It was um, a state which uh, by the 20th century was considered among the more progressive states. And as I have argued, that progressiveness seems to have come from the fact that it had a very uh, interesting, I would say, a bureaucracy that was nationalist, in the same way that you had nationalist economists and so on and so forth functioning in other parts of British India. So in some ways, the bureaucracy itself actually anticipates the nationalism that was part of the national movement in other parts of British India. Mysore itself did not have a very strong national movement until the 1930s, so it's a very late development And uh, the consequences for all of its uh, more progressive policy, it was often described as a model state, had to do with the fact that it took a number of policy decisions, which to some extent expanded education. I can't say that it was uh, vastly different from what happened in British India and also introduced policies of encouraging people who had not had those kinds of opportunities earlier to enter into the field of education and government employment through a policy of reservations. And of course, there was a very strong interest in industrializing the state, which was something that the British were implacably opposed to. So for all these reasons, and for many other reasons, the kinds of decisions it took, it was hailed as a model state. And it had a relatively peaceful kind of period of almost, uh, you know, one would say a hundred and... 40 years or so, after the warriors were uh, restored to power.
1: Thank you.
0: Okay, um, perhaps I could return to that very exciting uh, last bit of what you were saying about your work, which is really about the point about sensory histories. And you touched upon many things in this new research of yours. I assume it's new. I know you've published already, and you have spoken at other ICAS forums on it about how this research engages with childhood studies and childhood and girlhood as well. And also, and this is the point I want to pick up on, with sensory histories. And you talk about, in the talk, about tactility, about proximity, about dress and comportment and and character and age. I mean, all these are things that are, in a way, it's a cultural history, of the classroom, if you like, and the sensory history of the classroom. Sensory history has, um, I mean, there are studies of sensory history, but in Indian studies, this is something that has gained a bit of currency in recent times. And I'm reminded of, uh, for example, the work of, you know, Kama McLean in Heidelberg, for example, is working on the history of sound and how sound changes our understanding of historical phenomena. And we had a couple of weeks ago, I think we had Avadendra Shadhan from CSDS, who gave a talk at the Institute on his work on air and pollution. And again, he talked about how one of the areas or one of the questions that interests him is the way in which people perceive air and pollution and germs and so on, how these sensory histories are important for us to understand social and cultural processes. So I'd like to push you a little bit on that and ask you a little bit about your interest in sensory histories, why they're important and how you address them in the talk. Perhaps you can give us just a few bullet point ideas about where this interest comes from, what we hope to gain by learning more about sensory histories, and perhaps if you could link it up with the problem of sources which you addressed in the talk and what kinds of sources we need to write these sensory
2: histories. Yes, uh, let me start with the source question first, because it was really very slender threads on which I rested this argument. There definitely is, at least as far as my knowledge of the educational archive for the state of Mysore is concerned, a problem of sources, because these are not questions that uh, were of interest to people who were recording the achievements of the Department of Public Instruction. We had a very energetic and very um, careful head of the Department of Public Instruction from the 1860s right up until the 1890s called B.L. Rice. And it is thanks to him that we have even what we know about what happened in the classroom in terms of what the sounds in the classroom were, what the kinds of objects that were introduced into the classroom, uh, the extent to which teachers... And in turn, pupils actually engage with these objects and so on. But those were actually, as I say, very slender threads on which one rested this argument. The visual archive helped to a certain extent to reconstruct what the classroom might have looked like prior to the interventions of the missionaries to begin with and then the state and uh, the kinds of material transformations that happened through the establishment of the schoolhouse as a necessity, and also the kinds of objects that were placed in the school rooms for the purposes of getting students engaged with a different way of thinking about education. But there were other things that were happening in the classroom as well. And I think this is, again, speculative, but nevertheless very interesting because the missionaries spoke about it to a certain extent, about how they actually encouraged children of all castes to actually participate in classroom XP learning, even though there were serious prohibitions to any kind of proximity or contact, particularly with the lower castes. And we know from a number of accounts of the missionaries that even their schoolrooms were not entirely successful in eroding these kinds of differences. And they had to set up separate classrooms for a scheduled class, what the people to whom we refer uh, as scheduled class today, but in those days were referred to as depressed classes or Adi Dravidas uh, or Adi Karnatkas. Uh, people who were defined as a polluting presence uh, so that was one kind of exclusion that the missionaries did not fully succeed in breaking down. There was another kind of exclusion in which they actually participated, and that was in the dismissal of children of Devdasis, uh, who were actually among the more uh, well-educated young women, even prior to missionary interventions. Uh, and they were deliberately kept out of the classroom because of their rather dubious, uh, what was considered to be their dubious morality. This was out of deference to the presence of upper castes who were in the classroom and so on. So there is a caste story to be said about the classroom and what it enabled. There is also, of course, a gender story to be said about classrooms and the fact that there were separate classes and schools for uh, women as opposed to men, uh, young men, partly as a consequence of the kinds of prohibitions on that kind of proximity as well. The class question comes up less importantly at this time, because for the most part, most schools are run by the state. The emergence of private schooling becomes possible in the post-independence periods, really speaking. So there is a rather interesting mix of classes as well within the colonial classroom, which is of interest. Having said that, of course, you know, this is something which many scholars of the history of education have looked at what the boarding school does to the formation of character, what the boarding school does to the creation of new habits of cleanliness and order, neatness and discipline, and so on and so forth. But I was also very happy to see that the missionary archive actually allowed me to look at. This question of joy and what the student actually enjoys in the classroom, either through physical exertion or through speech, you know, speech which was prohibited, perhaps even in their families, enabling that kind of speech, the freedom to speak. Now, as I say, all of these were observations made on a very, very small empirical base. I really would not be able to say what the larger resource would be for making a more robust claim about the sensory experience of childhood.
0: But nonetheless, in- you have
2: picked up on something really
0: very important. I mean, it's gaining increasing importance in, in the Indian studies as well. And perhaps you could tell us why it's important. I mean, you know, what is it that we try to grasp when we, you know, when we try to grasp that sensory histories?
2: Well, you know, you'd be perhaps surprised to learn that some of these discriminations within classrooms have taken new forms up to the present day. So the expectation in the colonial period, in particular by many missionaries, that the classroom becomes a secular space in which the distinctions between pupils is somehow erased through the introduction of such things as uniforms, through the introduction of common syllabus, uh, textbooks, and so on and so forth. And of course, through the seating of children without regard to maybe possibly some kind of regard to gender norms, but otherwise no regard to caste or class. Yet all of these have, in some ways, Returned to the space of the classroom in completely new and rather uh, disturbing ways, which calls for some attention to what was actually achieved at the start of this process of mass education. We have a large body of Dalit autobiographies, for example, which talk about the experience of discrimination, particularly from the period of the 1950s and 1960s, the immediate post independence decades. When the government school was actually a school which held people from very different backgrounds, class wise, caste wise, and of course gender wise, partly because, as I just mentioned previously, there was no option of private schooling. So, this was a mixed classroom. This was common schooling. I mean, in some ways, common schooling is seen as something that is actually desirable, something that is necessary, and uh, it was certainly something which benefited. Both ends of the class spectrum, really speaking, at the time then, it was possible. But nevertheless, we have account after account of discrimination, which continues right up to the present day in different kinds of forms, whether it is in terms of keeping water separately for those who are people of lower caste. It involves getting them to clean the classroom when others are not burdened with any such expectation when it means that uh, they were uh, bands in Tamil Nadu, for instance, they were bands of different colors to indicate the caste to which they belong and so on and so forth. So a whole range of new forms of identification with caste in particular, but now increasingly also religion, which is not necessarily being thrust on them by the school authorities, but may in fact be actually emerging from communities themselves. So the classroom as a space where certain kinds of physical and material engagements happen, which have in turn repercussions on emotions, on ideas of the self and so on and so forth, becomes a very important place to study from a historical perspective, yeah. but also to see what kinds of new transformations, what kinds of changes and transformations are happening up to the present day. If I can just add one point yes. of the sources question. Actually, for the present day, I would say that there is a larger uh, archival base because many of these issues which I referred to are happening around us today are, of course, reported in the newspapers and to a certain extent become the basis of legal intervention because these are all practices which are practically disallowed mm-hmm. against the constitution and so on. So there is a la- larger sort of basis on which one can make the kinds of observations and uh, claims uh, that for which I had only very slender sources in the colonial period. So I just do want to say that. I mean, it, it really encouraging if if some scholars do take up these questions in a more systematic way. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan
1: Kim? No, I think uh, that's a great point to end on, actually. It was really interesting to listen to you and learn more about your research and you yourself as a researcher. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope our listeners do too. And of course, uh, they also enjoy your lecture as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening
0: to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.